UTL Radio welcomes you to this episode of Legal Q&A Live. On this program, we answer our listeners' legal and business questions that have been submitted during the week or are asked during the live show. As always, we welcome input and feedback from you, the listener, and we encourage you to join in the conversation by calling the live program at 347-855-8831 or by contacting us via our social media sites. Links to our various sites are listed on our main website, utlradio.com. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Well, good morning and welcome to this episode of Legal Q&A Live. Uh, Again, we're going to be broadcasting simultaneously on Blog Talk Radio and also on YouTube. So head on over to either channel uh, and you can participate in this live Legal Q&A. As we do every week, we have corralled the questions that have come in for the week before. And so I've got a list of questions that we're going to go through today. Uh, but that doesn't stop you from either calling in on Blog Talk Radio at 347-855-8831 or communicating via the chat room that's open on the YouTube page, uh, tweeting us, putting us, uh, you know, sending out a message on Facebook, however you want to do it. You can send your question in and your question will be answered live today on the air. So again, if you're listening to this and you want to call in 347-855-8831, that is the call-in number. Uh, Before we get going, I'd like to to, uh, thank today's sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks on the Internet. Audible has a massive library of more than 100,000 audio programs, and Audible is providing our listeners with an exclusive offer. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio, and you can download a free audiobook, no strings attached, Uh, and I encourage everybody to do that. It's free, right? Yesterday on our Week in Review show, we talked about a number of stories, two of them dealing with lawsuits stemming from Ebola. So if Ebola is something that you want to learn a little bit more about, uh, you can go to Audible. You can either get Beating Back the Devil by Marin McKenna or Ebola, The Prepper's Guide to Surviving the Killer Virus by B. Hardcastle. And if you go and use that special URL, audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio, you can get either of those books for free. So thanks to our sponsor, head on over and check that out. There's also a link, by the way, on our homepage, utlradio.com, where you can click on the link and and get your free book. Also, at the end of today's program, I'm going to give you information about this coming Thursday's show. We have with us a guest, um, celebrity chef, Fabio Viviani. He was a contestant on Top Chef, or he has been a contestant numerous times uh, in some of the subsequent contests that they've had. He's all over the place. Check out his website, FabioViviani.com. He's got a wine. He's got a line of pots and pans being sold at Bed Bath & Beyond. He's a restaurateur. He's an entrepreneur. So he's he's a ton of, uh, of different things. And we're going to be talking to him live on Thursday. Our conversation is going to focus about business and business success. But we're also going to be giving away an autographed copy of his brand-new book, and it's not even out yet, but we have an autographed copy sitting here. I put a video up yesterday on YouTube that you can check out. It's got all the contest rules, but I want to give it to you one more time. At the end of the show today, I'm going to tell you how you can put in your entry to win a copy of Fabio's new book. And again, it is autographed, so we'll get to that at the end of the show. All right, let's start with the first question today. Um, what is the process for getting the court venue changed? And now here's the you know, more in-depth question. I've been living in another state with my son for over five years, and I'd like to get the venue changed to my current state and county. My son's father still lives in the state where the original divorce custody was filed. Okay, this is a, an interesting question because it's really a two-part answer. Uh, the, the asker of the question is confusing venue with jurisdiction. So let's talk for a second about the difference between venue and jurisdiction. Venue is where you can be sued, what county you can be sued in. Um, But jurisdiction is whether or not a particular state or court has the legal authority over you. So let me explain. 
you could have a contract that you enter into with someone in, um, let's, let's use New Jersey as an example, in Bergen County. And you're in Bergen County and the defendant's in Bergen County. So you've got this contract. You want to sue them for breaching the contract. You can't file that in Atlantic County or Passaic County if there's nothing that connects that county with the contract. All right. Now, what if you want to sue, let's say you live in Passaic County and, and then the defendant's in Bergen County, um, and you sue them in Passaic County? The defendant can say, wait a minute, this is an improper venue. You have to sue in a county where either the contract was signed or where I reside, my business resides. So they can say that they want to change the venue and move the case from Passaic County to Bergen County. Jurisdiction is completely different. Jurisdiction is, does a court have jurisdiction, meaning mm-hmm. have control or legal authority to handle or oversee or hear your case? So I'll give you an example. Let's say that one of the defendants in a case lives in New York. and um, Or let's say a plaintiff. One of the plaintiffs lives in New York. But um, the contract was signed in New Jersey. The deal took place in New Jersey. The businesses are located in New Jersey. But just the owner of the business who entered into the contract actually lives in New York. Can he bring that action in a New York court? Now, this isn't venue. This The question here is, can the New York state courts properly adjudicate that claim? Do they have any legal reason to get involved in that case? And the answer is no. It would have to be New Jersey that would have jurisdiction. Um, another example of the case that, that we actually are working on, it's a personal injury case. And, you know, you might have heard me talk about this before. We take very few personal injury cases. We're primarily a business litigation uh, and personal law firm. Um, but we do have this one particular case, and it's interesting because the accident occurred in North Carolina. The defendant is located in Florida, and the plaintiffs are in New Jersey. And so there was a whole issue of jurisdiction. What court controls? What court should have the authority to adjudicate the claim? And you, know, you might think, well, it's New Jersey because they live in New Jersey. Maybe you think it's Florida. Um, so that's jurisdiction. What court has the ability to hear the case? Venue is where the location of the case is. So you could have the proper state. The state could have jurisdiction over you, but venue might not be proper. So getting back to the question here, she's been living in another state, and apparently her ex-husband has sued her for something, probably some modification of child support or whatever. And she wants to know if she can change venue. Well, what she's really asking is, is the state where he filed the case the proper jurisdiction? Do they have jurisdiction over this matter? And without more information, I can't, I can't you know, decide one way or another. But let's assume for a second that um, jurisdiction is improper. Let's just assume that the state of New Jersey, I think this is New Jersey. No, actually, this is Illinois. The state of Illinois has has no legal grounds to handle this case. So here's an example. Let's assume for argument's sake that the asker of the question lived in Florida at the time she was married to her now ex-husband. So they're both married in Florida, living in Florida. The husband gets divorced and goes to Illinois. Now he wants to sue her for, let's say, child support modification. Can he file that in Chicago? Or in Illinois? The answer is no, because the Illinois State Court doesn't have the legal authority to hear that case. There's no jurisdiction. So his options are to sue her in Florida. Now, let's say for a second that she lives in um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a, a county. I'm not up on all the counties in Florida, but let's say she lives in Broward County um, and he files suit in Orange County. It would be venue if she wants to try to move that to Broward County. So that's venue, jurisdiction, the state have the authority. So hopefully that's clear. Um, now, her ultimate question is, what's the process? Well, the process really is, if you're going to try to change venue, you need to file a motion with the court to change venue. And that holds true whether it's state court or federal court. 
if there's an improper venue, then you need to file a motion to change venue, and you need to explain in the motion uh, why the venue is incorrect. So, for example, there's no ties to this county. Um, we didn't sign the contract here. I live in this county. The defendant lives in the same county, but it's not the county that he sued me in. So there's all these different variations and, and reasons, but that's how you would change the venue. If there is jurisdiction, you could operate uh, in a number of ways. One way would be to file a motion to dismiss. So if you got served with a complaint that was filed in a state court, so let's go back to the example of Illinois and Florida, he files it in Illinois. Illinois is not going to affirmatively say to a plaintiff, no, no, we're going to reject that filing because we don't have jurisdiction. They don't get that far. They just have the clerk accept the papers, accept the pleading, file it, and then it's up to the defendant to determine whether or not that action is improper. So uh, generally speaking, the court is not going to come out and say, oh, excuse me, sir, you, you filed in the wrong you know, place. We have no jurisdiction. That's not how it works. So let's assume he files in Illinois, and now she wants to get it out of Illinois. She wants to tell the Illinois state court, whoa, hold up. You don't have jurisdiction. You, don't, you can't legally bind me. You have no authority over this case. So one way to get out of that is to file a motion to dismiss. Dismissing the case in Illinois on the grounds that there's no jurisdiction. Okay, and you'd make the legal argument about jurisdiction, and uh, the court would decide. And then, obviously, if it was dismissed in Illinois, he would be able to refile that in Florida. So I hope that clears up this idea of venue and jurisdiction. I'm not going to get into the complexities of it because jurisdiction can become exceedingly complex. I mean, there are books written just about jurisdiction, and students in law school spend a great deal of their early semester in, in civil procedure focused around jurisdiction. So uh, if you've got a specific jurisdiction issue, something a little more complicated and you want to address that, uh, call in, send an email, post on social media, and we'll take that question and we'll answer it on the next show. Uh, and if it's super complex, obviously we can talk privately and I can explain it to you. But that's venue and jurisdiction. All right, the next one. My ex-boyfriend is suing me for $3,000. Um, and you know, some of the, the grammar on some of these questions isn't 100%, so I'm going to read it like it is. Uh, my ex-boyfriend is suing me for $3,000 that he helped me with a month ago. I met my ex-boyfriend in 2010. Uh, we talked. He understood that I had some, some bills and outstanding financial obligations. He helped me. He gave me $2,000 and then another $1,000 a week ago. I then decided to end the relationship because he wants to move to Canada and I couldn't because of my kids and a custodial agreement. So he messaged her on Facebook saying he's going to go to small claims court to sue her. And he advised her that a deputy would come to her house and arrest her. He wants his $3,000 back, essentially. Um, and she wants to know what she should do. Does she have to give the $3,000 back? Is she going to be arrested? How is this going to play out? Well, let's break it down then. So first of all, is this a crime? Let's get that out of the way first because, you know, fear of jail and, and, and police, that's something frightening for everybody. Is this a crime? No. No, it's absolutely not a crime. There is no criminal liability here whatsoever. So does she have to worry about being arrested? No. This is a civil matter. This is a, a dispute over monies, um, you know, borrowed, lended, uh, lent, uh, given, however you want to phrase it, this is not a criminal matter. There's no crime there that's been committed. So no criminal. Don't worry about that. Now we look at, do you have to pay the $3,000 back? And that's going to depend on specific facts. So let's talk about a gift. If somebody gives you a gift, the intent of that gift giving is to provide you with something um, they don't have any expectation of repayment. They don't expect you to give something back. You give somebody a holiday gift, a Christmas gift. Um, you don't always expect to give back. You're just giving it to give. That is a gift. If it's a loan, that's a different story. So in this case, we're going to assume, because it doesn't say in the facts, but we're going to assume 
that there's no written document that makes this $3,000 payment a loan. There's nothing in writing that says, I'm loaning you this money with the expectation of repayment. This is a loan. Here are the repayment terms. You're borrowing this. Here's the repayment term. There's nothing like that. This is, oh, look, my girlfriend's having a hard time. I've got a little extra cash laying around. I'm going to give it to her to be nice. Okay? That is a gift. That is not a loan unless there is something that exists to prove that this is a loan or that there was some conversation. Uh, even something like an email, here's Sally, I'm giving you $3,000, pay me back when you get a chance. That's a loan. Okay, that's not a gift. But assuming there is none of that, nothing that takes this away from a gift, she is not obligated to pay the money back. He gave it to her as a, as a gift, as a, um, a way to help her out with no expectation of recovery of that money. So, in my opinion, no, you don't have to pay this back. Uh, his claims about the deputy coming to her house to arrest her, that's just meant to intimidate because there's no way that that happened. Um, what might happen, just so people understand, when you serve a special civil uh, or in other states, the, the, the lower court, the civil court, um, not the Superior Court or the Supreme Court, as, as they call it in New York. When you serve a complaint, you have to serve that um, via the court, and they will oftentimes mail that out to you. They can also appoint a sheriff or a deputy to come out and serve you with the complaint. And this happens in the higher courts as well. Uh, in higher courts, you often use a process server, but you can have a sheriff deliver the summons and complaint to the defendant. So maybe this is where he's getting himself all confused. Maybe he's just trying to intimidate her. I'm not sure. But um, So I just want to clear that up because I don't want you to see a sheriff going to somebody's door and saying, hey, remember that guy told me that it's not a crime? Well, it's not a crime, not with these set of facts. But could you still have a sheriff come to your door? Yes. But it's for the purpose of serving you in legal process, giving you the summons and complaint. And then that official signs what they call an affidavit of service, and that goes back to the court. And that says, hey, look, we did serve this person. Because if you don't serve a summons and complaint on the person, on the right person, and in the manner prescribed by the court rules, depending upon your state, then you don't have good service. You don't have in personam jurisdiction. It's it's a silly legal term, but you know you, you can't sue somebody, you can't give them notice of being sued if you're not serving them. So we can talk about service of process uh, maybe next week if there are some questions that come in about that, but suffice it to say that, uh, yes, there are times when a sheriff or a deputy will come to the house, but in an instance like this where there's no crime being committed, it's to serve a document. I personally would say to her, why don't you wait and see what happens? Wait and see if this guy actually sues you because it's going to be time and money on his end. Um, it's $3,000. We believe it to be a gift. We believe that there's nothing in writing that makes this anything other than a gift. It's not a loan. There are no repayment terms. There's nothing in writing. She's not going to be arrested. So I would wait this out and see what happens. Um, and then obviously she gets sued. Then you're going to have to get a lawyer or defend it yourself. But at the end of the day, I think she probably walks away with a victory on this one. Um, you know, however, though, as we've talked about in the past, once you get sued and you have to pay a lawyer to defend you, how much of a victory do you have? Because 90% of the cases in America, there is no right to recovery of attorney's fees. So, all right, next. Now we're going to move into the, the, the world of contracts. Um, this is a contract that is being refused, and um, apparently they won't give the deposit back. So here's the story. This person arranged to buy a puppy. They paid a deposit, and they are willing to pay the balance on delivery of the puppy. All right, so they pay a certain amount, and then the full amount's due when the breeder delivers the puppy. 
So a week after making the initial payment, the seller has contacted them and asked for the remaining balance because they're having some sort of financial issue. And this, this person told the breeder that they would not be willing to pay the balance, but they would pay a little extra to cover reasonable costs that may incur. So clearly the asker of this question is being completely reasonable. Um, they don't want to pay the, the full amount. Why would you pay the full amount when you don't have the product or the merchandise, or in this case, the dog? You don't have the puppy. So they don't want to do that. Now the seller got annoyed and has refused to move forward with the contract and doesn't want to give them back their deposit. And and the asker of the question wants to know if this is extortion, should she call the police? What should she do? All right, again, let's first address the police issue. Can you file a complaint with the police? Sure. Are they going to do anything? Probably not. This is not necessarily a crime. This appears to be a breach of contract issue, which is a civil matter. Okay? Sometimes criminal matters and civil matters can overlap. You know, maybe you're charged with um, vehicular manslaughter, and then you have a civil claim for negligence, all right? And it, it's arising out of the same accident. That's not this. This is, in my opinion, a clear breach of contract issue. So what can she do then if the police are seemingly out of the question? Well, she's got two options, really. Option one is to pay the balance and hope that the breeder sends the puppy, right? And if you part with your money, I mean, what's the um, incentive for this breeder to send you the dog? I'm going to assume, based upon the way this is written, that the breeder is out of state. So, you know, if you pay the balance, are you going to get your dog? It's 50-50. You have no idea. Uh, the seller has already shown him or herself to be sort of untrustworthy, and so I'd hesitate with paying a balance. Um, if it was a small amount and you wanted to pay it just to see if you could get your dog, that's, that's a different story, and that's up to you. Uh, now, legally, if you don't want to pay, what do you do? Well, you have to sue the breeder, and I would hope that a contract like this, because dogs are generally not $300, you're looking at 500 and up, sometimes 1000 2500 depending upon the dog. I would hope that this agreement is in writing, that you have a signed contract with the breeder. If you have a signed contract with the breeder, uh, you really need to have that contract analyzed, look at the terms, see what the terms are, see if there's anything in there about demand the balance, uh, canceling the contract, any of that stuff. Take a look and see if that actually exists because that's going to change you know, your legal approach. But let's assume for a second that it doesn't say anything more than a standard contract. You agree to, agree, uh, to pay a deposit. We agree to send you this dog. And at the time we send you the dog, you pay the balance. All right? Let's, let's assume it's just simple like that. Well, they don't want to do that because they want to change the terms of the contract. They want their money now, not when they originally agreed to take payment. That is the breach of the contract. So from a legal standpoint, you have the legal grounds to be able to sue the breeder for breaching the contract. How long is that going to take? Are you ever going to get your dog? Are you going to get your deposit back? Well, those are questions that go beyond the simple legal realm. And here's why. Here's why I say this. Let's assume that she sues the breeder. What if the breeder has no money? Now, we already know from the question that the breeder is looking for the final balance because they're having financial issues. So if you sue the breeder and you want your deposit back, I mean, are you going to get paid? Even if you win that lawsuit, are you going to get your money back? That's something that goes beyond sort of the legal realm because now you've got to think, um, you know, the way that an attorney thinks when looking at a case. What's the likelihood that you're going to be able to recover the amount that you are claiming you are, are, are owed. And it's just not so simple. It's not, well, the law says you breached the contract, and therefore I get my money back. Well, yeah, the law says that, but what if the seller has no money? They're, they're, they're broke, essentially, and they want your final payment so that they can send you the dog. Uh, that's something that you have to discuss with an attorney. 
Does that mean you don't sue? No. Does that mean that you don't spend the time or money to file the suit? No. Does that mean that you have to have certain expectations with respect to the suit? Absolutely. You have to understand that you could obtain a judgment against the, the, the breeder, and judgments are enforceable depending upon your state for 20 years. So you could go after the breeder every year. Every time they get money, you could try to levy their bank account or garnish their wages. But what's your judgment going to do for you if they file bankruptcy? What's your judgment going to do for you if they shut down their business and they open up another one the next day and there's no way to connect them personally to your action? Um, I know I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out a whole bunch of stuff here, but the reason I'm doing so is, is because a lot of times people will see things in law as black or white. Uh, here's the contract, it was breached, and therefore I need to recover money. And that's not always true. So the law says one thing, but the practical end of it, can I recover the money? That's completely separate. And that's what you have to realize, that this is more than just my rights were violated, I'm going to sue, and I'm going to win. Yeah, you could win, but are you actually going to recover? And we talk about this sort of thing with our clients all the time because they've got uh, these expectations. Every client comes in with expectations, and that's understandable. That's what we as lawyers are here. We're here to help you, um, but we also have to help you manage your expectations because if you come in and you say, listen, I want to file this lawsuit, and um, you know the defendant is a homeless man, but he, he did something to me, and I, I want to sue him. Is that a good case? It might not be. Maybe there's 100% liability, right? Maybe the guy did something to you. He defamed you. But he's homeless with no money. So what are you going to get out of that? Sometimes you want to do it just to get that judgment. But um, it, there's a practical element of law and lawsuits, and that's what you really need to talk to an attorney about. And, and you know, I have to say this just from experience. Most clients, 95% of the clients are Great. But there's a small percentage of people that hire a lawyer and they don't listen to the lawyer's advice. Um, I don't know why that is. I mean, there are good lawyers, there are bad lawyers, there are lawyers that fall in between. Um, it's up to you, the client, to decide what lawyer you feel more comfortable working with. But when the, the attorney gives you the information, you know, you've got to have some level of trust in the attorney. And that's why I think it's very important for you to screen the attorney right off the bat. Make sure that this attorney is somebody you feel comfortable with. It doesn't matter if it's a solo practitioner. It doesn't matter if it's an attorney from a super huge big firm. You've got to feel comfortable with them because you've got to be able to trust and rely upon what they're saying to you. A client who is constantly fighting with the attorney, constantly at odds, they're not going to absorb the information when an attorney says something to you like, yes, you have liability to sue on this breach of contract claim, but you have to understand that there is a greater than 75% chance that you will not get your deposit back because they've identified financial issues. So, you know, in this case, uh, I, I jumped way, way into some speculative stuff, uh, but in, in the answer to the question, Yes, you have a breach of contract claim. They didn't send you the dog. Your two options, send them the money and hope you get your dog or sue them and hope you get your deposit. So you're, you've got legal rights, but you're kind of in a tough spot. All right, moving on. Um, okay. All right, let's talk about this one for a second. Somebody's got a question about the difference between arbitration and mediation, aside from the fact that they're spelled differently. Um, all right, so let's look at mediation. Mediation is when two sides, and we're just going to keep it simple. I mean, there could be multiple sides, but let's say there's two sides. Sit down with an independent third party. It could be a judge. It could be a lawyer. It could be a counselor, whatever it might be. And you try to resolve your issues. You talk. You know, you lay out what you, you contend uh, the other person's done to you, and you try to work it out. And you've got this independent, um, impartial third party sitting there trying to help you resolve the issues. 
so uh, a lot of times we see this in divorce. Instead of going through traditional divorce where you're litigating and there's a lot of anger and resentment and frustration, and more importantly, a lot of money being burned up because attorneys are taking tons and tons of money on these divorce cases, the way to do it is through mediation. You go, you meet with a mediator, and you resolve your issues. The mediator puts together an agreement or another attorney does, and, and you're, you know, you're good to go. You're able to move forward. Mediation is non-binding, meaning that if the mediator makes a suggestion or proposal, you don't have to take that. You don't have to stick with it. It's not enforceable. Nobody's going to say, well, wait a minute, there's a mediation award here and you've got to comply. No. Mediation is informal, let's work it out together to save everybody money, time, and hassle. Arbitration is different. Arbitration is a similar setup, two sides and an impartial arbitrator this time, not a mediator. And you submit evidence to the arbitrator, and he or she decides who is right, who is wrong, who's going to get what percentage of money. The difference between mediation and arbitration is that arbitration is binding, meaning if the arbitrator issues an award, you are stuck with that. And it's not something like a lawsuit where you've got the right to appeal under certain circumstances. In order to appeal an ARB award, an arbitration award, I mean, you've got like 1% chance of being able to do that because it's so uh, restricted. There's only a few times like where you believe that the arbitrator has been fraudulently induced or where there's collusion with another party, so he's not an impartial arbitrator. But aside from that, and good luck proving that, by the way, but aside from that, you cannot overturn the ARB award. So an ARB award is binding. You get that ARB award, and you are stuck. Now, just because I like to confuse people, there are certain states, like New Jersey, and I don't understand this, but I don't understand why they call it what they call it, but they often issue a, um, a mandatory non-binding arbitration um, hearing. Now, 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 think of that, right? Isn't that just like the exact opposite of what I said to you? Mediation is non-binding. Arbitration is binding. Yet there are states like New Jersey that make you sit through a, a mandatory non-binding arbitration, right? How does that work? Let me give you the, the two-second rundown. In New Jersey, cases... Uh, especially personal injury cases, are submitted to mandatory, non-binding arbitration. You go in, you present your evidence to an arbitrator. He or she issues an ARB award. They say, all right, I think, plaintiff, you're entitled to this amount of money just based upon my experiences as an attorney. Now, you take that ARB award, that piece of paper, if you don't do anything with it, and the defendant doesn't do anything with it, after 30 days, that ARB award becomes binding, and now you are stuck with that award. If you don't like that award, either as the plaintiff or the defendant, you can file something called a trial de novo, and you can vacate that ARB award and then continue on with your suit. So that is a special nuance in New Jersey law. That's something that a lot of you guys out there are not going to see because your states don't have those programs. Um, I would have preferred if they called it mediation. I think the reason that they don't is because the um, the award, if nothing's done with it after 30 days, becomes a binding award. So I think that that's why they're stuck on the term arbitration. But the general rule, the general rule is mediation, non-binding, arbitration, binding. Be very careful when you enter into agreements as a business, as a consumer, whatever it might be. Arbitration means you are stuck with whatever the arbitrator decides. And and you might have seen those contracts, um, Microsoft and Dell. Whenever you buy a product, Apple, there's always this language in there that all claims are to be arbitrated in front of a three-panel arbitration committee. Well, there's three arbitrators. That's, that's what it is, but... The ARB award, again, binding, okay? So ARB binding, mediation not binding. All right, now let's start getting into something a little bit different. Here is a, a gentleman who wants to know whether or not 
he has a viable lawsuit against Walmart. So here's the, the summary. He's sitting in his wheelchair inside of a Walmart, and one of the employees comes out from the back room, and he's pushing a metal crate uh, that had a lot of boxes on it. And as he was, was moving towards the shelves where he was going to restock, um, he ran into the back of this individual. Boxes fell, and the individual injured his upper back, his neck, his left upper arm, and he's going to a chiropractor for care. Um, and he noted that he was sitting underneath a camera at Walmart, which theoretically recorded the entire incident. He wants to know whether or not he has a good claim. Well, he has a claim, for sure. Whether it's good, whether he's going to be able to recover, that depends on a number of things. Let me start off by saying that, you know, since we're talking about Walmart specifically, Walmart is notorious for defending lawsuits that are filed against it. You know, there's this belief by some plaintiff's attorneys, um, and, and this is why, you know, I, I always say to people when they go to a plaintiff's attorney, really question the plaintiff's attorney. Make sure you really feel comfortable that they have your best interests at heart. Oftentimes, this is not to knock all plaintiff's attorneys, um, but oftentimes they'll take cases that they think they can do minimal amount of work on and they'll get a minimal amount of recovery, but it's worth it. So, for example, if you go to a plaintiff's attorney and you sign a contingency agreement where you are going to be giving the attorney 33 and a third percent of your recovery, and the attorney says, well, you know, this case isn't worth that much, but maybe if I can quickly settle for $5,000, you know, I'll get, I'll get a little bit of money. I'll get over $1,000, and if I just send a letter, well, that's worth it because my one letter translates into, you know, twelve, thirteen, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500. So that's worth it. They do that because sometimes there are defendants that you just know have this reputation of rolling over. So you, you threaten to sue them, and all of a sudden they're, they're offering to pay you something. And lawyers who, who do this routinely have come up against particular companies. They know who they can do that to. Walmart is not that company. Walmart has uh, defended thousands and thousands of lawsuits. Uh, they have hundreds every year that they defend vehemently. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to win, but I just want to let you know you're in for a fight. So in this case, you're sitting there in a wheelchair, minding your own business, not doing anything wrong, and the person who's pushing up these big, you know, big card boxes pushes into you and drops the, drops the boxes on you. So let's look at the elements. What's the cause of action? The girl, because I, I just realized, I've been saying guy who was pushing the cart, it was a girl. Um, the girl who was pushing the cart and knocked it into the handicapped individual in the wheelchair had a duty of care to act in a reasonable manner. And she breached that duty when she ran into him and had boxes falling, because that's unreasonable, right? Now he's got injuries, and the injuries are approximately caused Right, there's a, a causal connection between the injuries and this girl who ran them down in the aisle with the big, you know, cart of boxes. So that's great. Liability is there. She, you know, you've got a negligence claim against this girl. Now we've got to look at damages. You've got to prove that you have damages that you can recover from uh, or you can recover money for. So we don't know the extent of his injuries. He's claiming that he's going to a chiropractor. Oftentimes, when a defendant or a defendant's attorney sees the word chiropractor with no other treatment, no hospital, no doctor, no orthopedist, no neurologist, they think that this is kind of a BS claim because a chiropractor, while chiropractors serve a purpose and they are licensed professionals and they actually do help a large number of people, they are not the same as an orthopedic surgeon. They're just not. So when you, you see a report or comments from a chiropractor and no other medical professional has, has seen this individual, it looks questionable. Now, as a defense attorney, you're saying, I bet you that, that we can knock this claim out because he's not as injured. This is a chiropractor report, and the chiropractor might not be qualified to talk about certain things. Uh, quick example. Years ago, I had a case 
where the plaintiff was suing uh, this doctor's a malpractice case. And we were representing the doctor. So what happened is the plaintiff had fallen and hurt her knee and was relying on, uh, on this knee injury to generate a ton of money for her. And so she's suing the doctor because the doctor um, didn't treat her properly. So in the course of suing the doctor, she has to go out and get an expert witness, another doctor, to say that, that her doctor was, was wrong and, and committed malpractice. In the course of that case, she hires a foot doctor. Right Now remember, her injury is to her knee. She hires a foot doctor. And she has the foot doctor come to a deposition and testify that the knee doctor, the orthopedist, did, did not handle this case right. Well, what are his qualifications as a foot doctor to talk about a knee? And we were able to knock him out, and his testimony was not permitted. And so at that point, because of the discovery end, end date, she had no expert, and, and you know the doctor won. Um, he really didn't do anything wrong to begin with. But my point in telling you that story is that with chiropractors, it's kind of the same thing. A lawyer sees a chiropractor with no other treatment as a weakness. If there was a chiropractor and an orthopedist or a regular doctor treating physician, that's a different story. Does that mean that this gentleman who got hurt in Walmart is not going to be able to recover? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm sure that he'll get something. But I want to make you and him aware that Walmart is not one of these companies that just lies down and, and willingly gives up money. Um, I've seen them fight people for $500. So keep that in mind. But uh, again, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a terrible thing that happened. Hopefully this guy's not really that injured because I would rather not be injured and um, as opposed to being injured and getting money for it. Um, that's like that movie Office Space. For those of you who've seen it, where um, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy who hates his job, not the main character, the little, little short guy, hates his job, and he gets fired, and then he's trying to kill himself in the garage. His wife comes in and, and you know, catches him, and so he's saying, oh, the car got stuck. So in an effort to, to kind of cover up the fact that he's going to kill himself, he starts to back out of the driveway, and then he gets by this truck and then he's in a wheelchair and he's all bandaged and brakes and um, and, and it's funny because the whole plot of, of, of that little uh, scene is that um, the guy is thrilled that he's injured thrilled because now he's got this uh, multi-million dollar lawsuit personally I would much rather have my health than have money as a result of an injury and hopefully most of you out there agree um yeah, you have to value your health more than getting into an accident for the, in the hopes of getting some money. All right. This is uh, going to be, let's see what, what time we have now. All right, this is going to be our last one for today. Um, and I'd like to thank everybody, by the way, for submitting these questions. I hope that you feel like I'm giving you valuable answers and information. Uh, last one is this. This is kind of, it, it seems silly when I, I say it. You're going to say, What? Can I sue anyone who's wasting my time? Okay. Uh, hi. I was thinking in general about all kinds of time wasters, whether it's a telemarketer, Jehovah's Witness, door-to-door -door salesman, a person who's late for an appointment, long lines at the bank and supermarkets, talkative girlfriends, <laughs> or even people like me who ask questions and waste time. Uh, how do you even respond to that question? Um, well, let, let's, because I don't know if this is in jest or not, but let's, let's actually make a little uh, part of this a serious question. He talks about telemarketers. There is a law that says that telemarketers cannot continue to harass you. There's the do not call registry. So if a telemarketer continues to harass you on the do not call registry, um, is it possible to have legal recourse? Yes. But the rest of this question, completely silly. Can you sue somebody for wasting your time? Can you sue somebody for a bank line? No. Can you sue, I mean, well, let me, let me qualify that. You can sue anybody for anything in this country. You need anything more than a good faith basis. 
Now, what the heck does that mean? Well, you believe that your lawsuit is justified. So let's take this guy, right? Everybody's wasting his time and he wants to sue everybody. Maybe he really believes that he has the right to sue them, that they are wasting his valuable time and he can quantify what his time is worth. Who the heck knows? Um, but he sues. He's allowed to file that complaint because he's got this good faith basis. Now, what might happen, and I would I would bet um, that if, if a lawyer received this for their client who's being sued by this gentleman, they would immediately file a motion to dismiss and serve this guy with a frivolous litigation notice and try to sanction him or his attorney and, and penalize him because these are not valid claims. You cannot sue the, the people at the bank because they didn't give you a lollipop. Um, you can't sue them because the lines are long. You can't sue a talkative girlfriend. I mean, are you kidding me? That's just, I don't even know how to respond to that. Right? People would be suing their kids left and right for wasting their time. Um, so this is a silly question. The only thing that you can take from this is that in telemarketer world, they do have to comply with the Do Not Call Registry, and there is recourse for telemarketers. Uh, everybody else that wastes your time, while I believe from this question that your time is super-duper valuable, you cannot sue. So there you have it. All right, that's going to do it for today. I just want to remind everybody about Thursday. At the top of the show, I talked about um, how you can enter this giveaway for Fabio Viviani's autographed book, brand-new autographed cookbook. book isn't even out yet. You're going to get it before it hits the shelves. Um, so how are we going to do that? How do you enter this? Well, A, you could go over to YouTube and check out the video that I posted uh, yesterday, and that gives you everything. It gives you our contact information, how you enter, the rules. It even shows you the book with the autograph page. So head on over to YouTube. Um, just search us up, and uh, I think that the channel might be under PJ Lamont 1, and, and you can find all of our videos. But there's also links all over our sites, utlradio.com. I'll link to the YouTube page directly. Uh, so how do you enter? All you have to do is submit a question for Fabio. Okay? It doesn't matter if we have a 1,000 questions. We might not be able to get to all of them on the air. But if you submit a question, you're going to automatically be entered into this drawing giveaway. And, um, you know, it, it's enter as many times as you want. Ask as many questions as you want. And we're going to just tally them all up. And then live on the show Thursday, we're going to pick a winner with Fabio on the air. And then you'll get your book. So it's super simple. Where do you ask your question? Post a comment on YouTube, right? Post a comment on Blog Talk Radio. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Google+. Go over to the YouTube page. Leave a comment somewhere. We've got people watching for the questions, and then we're going to pull them and submit them. If you want to uh, to skip the social media pages altogether and you're sitting at your desk, you want to fire off an email, go to giveaways, giveaways, G-I-V-A-W-A-Y-S at utlradio.com. Giveaways at utlradio.com. Submit your question. You'll automatically be entered. And then if you are unable to listen to the show live on Thursday, um, somebody will contact you if you are, in fact, the winner of Fabio's autographed book. Uh, you don't want to miss this show anyway, whether you download it later. Obviously, you can subscribe to this through iTunes, and then you get all the new episodes automatically downloaded. You can listen to it if you go to, to uh, utlradio.com. There's a player that you can click on. If you, um, if you download the app, right, the free app that we talk about all the time, um, and I'd like to thank, by the way, all of you guys who have downloaded the app and have been asking questions. Some of these questions today were submitted through the app. And, and I really feel um, very happy to know that you guys are enjoying the app and the ability to ask a lawyer uh, legal questions directly through the app. So I'd like to thank you for downloading. Make sure you tell your friends and pass on the information so that they can get the benefit of the app, too. Go to the iTunes App Store. It's for iPhone and the iPad, all you have to do is search up Law Offices of Peter Lamont, and, uh, and you'll find it there. It's free. You also have the ability within the app to stream live these shows. You can you have access to our complete video library and an archive of all of our prior 
um, radio shows. So if you wanted to hear last Thursday's show with professional photographer Rick Garrity, you can head on over to iTunes, download that app, and then you can just search right up on the app and listen to it on your phone or iPad. Uh, if you want to hear today's show, you could subscribe on iTunes, and uh, you're going to get that downloaded to your podcast section. So there's a ton of ways to connect with us. But here's the thing that I want you guys to all know. Um, I want you to know how important it is to, to me that you guys give me feedback and let me know this is cool, we appreciate it, it works, or hey, we don't like this, we wish you'd, you'd talk more about these topics. Um, I'm doing this for you. It, it's part of our social outreach program. I get nothing from this. You know, this isn't a pay service. There's not even ads on our YouTube channel. We're not even taking money from, from ads. This is really meant to be a give back to the community. And I, I hope that you guys see this for what it is. You know, we put a lot of time and effort into these activities, and, uh, and it's done for you. So if you could take a few minutes and give us some feedback, you know, if you watch a video on YouTube that we put out, just give us a thumbs up. Um, you know, let us know that we're doing the right thing and, and things that you want to see. I'm, I'm unaware of anything like this where, you know, there's this free legal advice. And um, so I'm really anxious to hear what you guys think. For those of you who have commented and, and posted, I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot to me to know that you guys out there you know, enjoy this because I enjoy doing it, but it really means a lot to know that you guys think that this is a, a good thing that, that we're doing. And, and, you know, it allows me, your feedback allows me to provide you with better content and better guests. So I'm um, speaking of better guests. You know, this Thursday, celebrity chef Fabio Viviani. We're going to talk all about business with him. The next week, Captain Lee from Bravo's show Below Deck. We're going to talk to him about leadership. We've got Matt Roloff coming on. He's a star of Little People, Big World. He'll be on in, in December or, or November, right after pumpkin season. Uh, we've got um, a naval captain. I mean, we've got so many people coming up, and, and that's a result of your feedback, and that allows us to bring on better guests because we know what you guys are interested in. So I want to thank you for the feedback. If you haven't left any yet, I encourage you to do so. Um, I hope that this information is helpful. Tune in this Thursday, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, for Understanding the Law Radio, Understanding Business, when we talk to our celebrity chef guest, Fabio Viviani. Uh, I'd like to thank you guys again, and uh, I'd like to remind you that there's power in understanding the law.